life is short and um and I don't really have a whole lot of regrets in all honesty especially in the now 11 years since Elijah's been gone like I I had to reinvent myself you know that's what I was explaining to you about you know when you lose your identity in your your spouse you know when Elijah passed away I didn't really know what I was going to do as a woman who's no longer married you know mm -hmm. it's like okay wait a minute I'm entering a world where I'm by myself and I'm young. You know, I was 37 years old when I became a widow. And, you know, it's kind of like when you take those vows, when you hear, you know, till death do you part, you never think it's going to happen within 15 years, not when you're 20 years old. I made vows. I broke them. Hindsight, I didn't comprehend the gravity of the exchange of this solemn promise a vow before God and man. It's time to unpack these sacred words so that I never take this oath lightly ever again. I'm Latarris R. Whitfield, and this is the Marriage Vow Series on the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. Welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. I'm your host, Latarris R. Whitfield. Hey, before we get started, are you still shacking up with us? Make sure you hit that subscription button and subscribe. We're trying to reach 100,000 subscribers by the end of this year. And I believe we can do it because I looked in our analytics and if everybody who watched the podcast subscribe, we'll be at 120,000 subscribers. So come on, y'all. Stop shacking up. You know, we've been doing um, some amazing work here uh, during the Marriage Vow series. And we have arrived at the vow that makes me the most uncomfortable. And uh, today's guest pointed that out to me because this is my good buddy. So I always talk about how uh, I just get really uncomfortable about this. And but we got to talk about it. So something has to definitely be addressed. And she knows all too well um, when you're thrust in this position, how you have to deal with it. And so without further ado, welcome to the Dear Future Wifey podcast. My homie. Kimberly Alexander. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm happy to be here next to you talking about this subject. So today's episode is entitled Till Death Do Us Part. Mm -hmm. And Kim, you know all too well the travesty of going through the loss of a loved one, your lover, your husband, your boo, uh, all things love. And um, so we're going to talk about that as yeah. uncomfortable as it is. And yeah, you said you want to address this. So we did shoot this episode before. First, I said we wasn't going to mention this, but I think that as we keep it lit on the podcast, that we might as well is keep it lit. Now, Kim, why did you say um, why did we come into the agreement that we need to shoot this over? Because when I asked you your thoughts on the recording, you really couldn't tell me what we talked about. And it, it literally verified my suspicions that you weren't 100 percent present when we filmed the first time. And then when um, you explained to me that death makes you uncomfortable, to me that meant we needed to go further into go that because it's part of the vows and it's part of my experience. And talking about it for me is helpful because I feel like it will help other people who find themselves in the same position. 100%. And to add more context around it is you came in right after I shot the episode with mm -hmm. our buddies, yeah. uh, Tavia and Jewel. Mm -hmm. And so when I was doing that episode, I was fully immersed in that experience and looking and seeking and 
and uh, interceding for God to perform a miracle in that episode. And you came in right afterwards and you said, what's wrong with you? What's what you don't I seem sure like, you're, you don't seem like your normal self. Yeah. I said, I just, so are you tired? Are you sleepy? I was like, I just, I just got finished doing the episode mm -hmm. with, with Tay. And uh, you're like, you just don't seem all the way there. I'm saying, yeah. I'm good. Let's go and record this. We're good. Yeah. We're good. But it was, it was a heavy, I said, it was just so heavy doing that episode. Mm -hmm. And um, it was beautifully done. Oh man. Thank yeah, you. So, I love them. so it's, it's, it's amazing. So we're going to talk about it. We're going right, to talk about go. this till death do us part. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit of background. When did you first get married? So I got married in 1995. I was just turning 22 years old. Mm -hmm. um, my husband was 25. And, you know, I had just met him a couple of years prior. You know, I met him as a sophomore when I was at the University of Florida. Had no idea when I met him that he was going to be my husband. Um, but, you know, love happened, and uh, and we did everything by the book, kind of, sort of, outside of the shacking up part. Shacking up. See? See, that's why I say, hey, make a oh, commitment. Yeah. Stop shacking up. Yeah. But your husband said, you know what? We ain't going to keep shacking up. We're going to make right. a commitment. How long were y'all dating before he decided to make that commitment? Oh, let's see. So we started dating in February of one year. We started living together January of the next year, got en engaged in April, and married the following May. Okay. So we did boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So each year y'all made a, yeah. uh, a step closer to forever. Mm -hmm. And um, so your husband, he played football. You met him in mm -hmm. college. He played football. He ended up going pro. Mm -hmm. And so you moved. Here you were a young girl yeah. that relocated from fresh out of college to what state did y'all move to? Well, I wasn't fresh out of college because I was only 19. Oh, you were still in college? Yeah, I was in college. Lord Jesus. Yeah, so I broke my daddy's heart and <laughs> um, and and moved from Florida to Denver, Colorado, where my soon-to-be husband was playing for the Denver Broncos. My husband, my husband was great, but my dad wanted to kill me. Yeah. Well, so tell me why, because I, I got I got to be on your dad's side. So you got this daughter that's in school, yeah. in college, getting that education, mm -hmm. and then you called your dad up and said what? I'm I'm moving to Colorado with this guy that you've never met before. Oh Lord Jesus. Yeah. It's got me lightheaded. Yeah, it should. So 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 what did your daddy say? Um. Well, you know, he told me I was crazy. Told me he wishes I, you know, he that I wouldn't do it. Tried to talk me out of it, but um, I was headstrong and in love. And that's all that mattered. And you were how old? Oh, uh, at that time, I just turned twenty. Ooh, Jesus. Yeah, and in hindsight, I cannot believe I did it. I'll be, I'll be real honest. As a mom, like I would fall apart if my kids pull that stunt. And said, "I'm leaving college." Yep. And I'm going to go stay with my boyfriend. That you've never met. That you've never met. Mm -hmm. And I'm 20 years old and he's 22. He was 23. 23. Mm -hmm. And, but he plays football. I mean, yeah, but at the time, I, you know, I still didn't really even know what that, what that meant. Really meant. Yeah, <laughs> I like... didn't, I didn't care. It was a job. And so, um, it was just an interesting lifestyle and I didn't know what I was walking into you know, I'd been living in a college dorm. I'd eat a can of corn and a bag of potato chips <laughs> and be, you know, fine. And I moved in with a man who I needed to cook dinner for and wash his clothes. And what was that transition like? Hard. And I'm kind of glad we did it before we got married because I had to adjust. Like, I really had to grow up. So you had to go. You, what were you cooking at first? So I'm going to tell you, this is funny. It's this girl that, this girl inboxed me one day, emailed me last year, and she said, 
Uh-oh. <laughs> I made a little joke with my daughter because my daughter called me. She said, Dad, are you dating anyone? And I said, I want to tell you something. I met this girl. She's 25 years old. She said, Dad, Dad. I said, no, listen, listen. Mm. I said, she sent me this email, and um, she's amazing. I think this is the person that God wants me to be with. And then she said, Dad, Dad, no, because my daughter's 25. Dad, please don't. I said, right. listen, I'm going to read the email. And I read the email where the, late, the girl said, you know what? I would love to cook for you. Um, I know how to make macaroni and cheese. And then she said, and then she said, she said all this stuff. And I, I responded. I said, baby, baby, I said, I said, baby, listen. Uh, uh, my daughter's your age. There ain't nothing you can do for me. And um, and so I told my daughter that by letter on, thinking that I would date somebody her age. Mm. And she was just like, Dad, this is what my daughter said. My daughter real thrown off. She said, Dad, I just spies men that date uh, date women their daughter's age. She said, I'd rather you say you're dating a man than to say you're dating somebody that's my age. I said, Lord Jesus. Wow, okay, well, she, she has really a feel. really strong opinion about <laughs> she it. She has a really wow. strong opinion. I said, wow, Terry. She's like, I just can't stand that. I said, well, baby, you ain't never have to worry about that. <laughs> so here you are, this young girl uh -huh. that only knew how to crack open some corn yeah. and, and eat some potato chips. Mm -hmm. And now here you are making macaroni and cheese casserole. Oh, I, I was I was doing a lot. But, you know, I was smart because I knew where I was deficient. And yeah. so I reached out to his mom to find out what his favorite meals were. Yeah. And I learned how to cook those. Like, I mean, I wasn't a bad cook. I just didn't need to cook because it was yeah. just me. Um, so, you know, my mom loved to cook, so I would watch her. But I just... I just didn't need to cook. So was his mom on board with, with you, y'all moving in with each other? Oh, uh, no. So nobody was on board? N no. Well, I really didn't know his mom. And I'll be very, I'm going to be very frank. Um, because my mother-in-law and I did not have a good relationship. Okay. Like, at all. Like, she didn't come to our wedding. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow, that bad. So it was um, complicated. And it was tough because, you know, I just wanted to be accepted i loved her son i wanted to take care of him yeah and um and he was most important to me and i always regretted that we didn't have a good relationship but i also wasn't a punk and i wasn't going to sit up here and take being mistreated and um yeah and just kind of you know oh let me try to make it right with her like nah i i love him and he's my biggest concern we'll talk about yeah. it yeah the Bible says that a man and a woman shall leave their plant parents and cleave to one another. Absolutely. So y'all got to be uh, a united front. Mm -hmm. And so y'all got married. Uh, and what was that like? You got married at what age? Um, I just turned 22. Just turned 22. Mm -hmm. Y'all got married. He was uh, 25. 25. Did mm -hmm. y'all get married in Denver? Was it in Dallas? We got, no, was I went it? back home. I went back to Gainesville, Florida. Gainesville. And got married. Um, so actually, I was in school in Colorado. I was at the University of Colorado. And my dad was basically planning our wedding in Florida for me or for us. So luckily there was no Bridezilla type shows out back then. I didn't have a real <laughs> strong opinion about, you know, what I needed to have. I just wanted a cute dress and a cake and the color purple involved. And that was it. That was it. That was it. That's Your favorite color purple. Yep. And so, uh, so you got married. Mm -hmm. What did, how did you feel getting married? So what was the big difference between being a single College student mm -hmm. and a married college student. Ooh. <laughs> God, dog. Cooking dinner and washing clothes and having to think about somebody else's feelings when it came to making decisions. Even, we had to get used to each other. Like, I remember one time I went to get my hair done, you know, because back then I had a relaxer. And um, six weeks later, when it was time for me to get my relaxer done again, I'm like, hey, babe, I got to go get my hair done. And his response to me was, well, you just got your hair done. And it's like... 
Welcome to life with living with a woman. Like this is going to be an ongoing <laughs> process. Six weeks later. Yeah, yeah. You like just got every, every, every month later. we're gonna go through this. So <laughs> we both had to adjust to, you know, living together. And so um when you look back on your marriage mm -hmm. and I'm talking about the earlier years, mm -hmm. um so it's not only that you got married, but you're marrying somebody that's in a high profile sport. What was that like? What was the learning curve of that? Because I heard that there's a lot of bickering in the, you know, NFL wives, and then they got uh, alliances where y'all pull people together to try to be in support of each other, but you're trying to wrestle or battle with the cliques and all that mm -hmm. type of stuff. So what was that like as a young girl? Well, so it's interesting because I would always have people asking me, you know, like, what is it like being married to an NFL player? And for me, I had nothing to compare it to. So it's like, well, yeah. I mean, it's just, normal for me I, I don't know like the only real dif difference I ever saw is sometimes if we would go out somewhere and people would recognize him yeah and then of course on game day but on game day we never really interacted with the fans while we were together because we would always have security and like private parking so when I would meet him after a game it wasn't like we were being hounded by fans yeah. we had security but I mean, and then we would just go home and be regular and do normal family stuff, just normal. And then on Sunday, you know, he went to work. Went to work. That's back. how you looked at it, just work. It was his job, you know, and I was still in school. So, you know, during the week, I'm commuting back and forth between Aurora, Colorado and Boulder, Colorado. How far is that? Probably about 45 minutes, no snow on snow I days. It's a, it's a different ball game. But you know, all of my classmates Pun would intended. right. <laughs> all of my all of my classmates would go back to their dorms or their apartments and kick it all weekend. I'd go home, cook dinner, and I actually had a baby in the midst of all of that. I had a baby my I was senior about to ask year. You what yeah, happened. yeah. So right you have after. a baby. You going to school? Yeah. Everybody else in the dorms. Mm -hmm. You living in the house? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was I was pregnant shortly after we got married and had a baby that December. So ahead, was, what was so that was baby's name? Elijah. What was that? What was the husband's name? Elijah. There it is. Yeah, we Elijah. Make sure we... Elijah Alexander the Third was my husband, and I gave birth to number four. Elijah. Mm -hmm, it's a great name. Yeah, I love it. Uh, very prophetic name. Mm -hmm. um, and so, here you are. And what year were you in? You were a senior at that time. Mm -hmm. So you're a senior yeah. with kid with child. Yeah. Uh, married, gosh, your life expedited Had a lot going real quickly. On. Right. At such a young age. My daughter's 25 years old. That's uh, looking to be married this year. And even at 25, I'd be like, wow, you, you're young. But here you were at 22 Two. yeah. living that life mm -hmm. with, with a child. Mm -hmm. So uh, you grew up really fast. Yeah. So now here you are. You have uh, child number one. When did child number two come uh, come into play? Uh, two years later. Two years later. Yeah. Were you still in Colorado? Did y'all relocate to we, another at, team? At that point, we were living in Dallas. We had made Dallas our off-season home, but he was playing for the Indianapolis Colts. So we were just commuting from off-season home to in-season home. What is that like? What a is that pain like in the butt. Oh, my God. Some people want that life. They be like, yeah, we oh. got a house over here. We got a house mm -hmm. over there. Well, I mean, I guess it'd be cool if you're in a great city, but... Oh, Indianapolis. Well, you know, it was just... It was different from Colorado, which was different from Oakland, because we also lived in Oakland. So, I mean, it was just different. It wasn't like we were living in Miami and L.A., yeah. you know, New York, like big major markets where there was a whole lot to do. So but it was cool. So what do you say, like, that, that, that lifestyle? Is that a lifestyle that you liked a whole lot? Like, 
when you talk about like the NFL life, because you got to mm-hmm. think a lot of women really look at those type of guys and they go after them. They like, yeah. I want a baller. I want a guy that plays football. I want a basketball player. They they want that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I want I want you to educate people on the other side of mm-hmm. that, the nursing, the wounds, the that type of mm-hmm. stuff that you have to go through. The yeah. the um, I'm not going to say anything else. I want you to just come from your heart and tell me what was the other side of the ball. Well, what I think is different is, you know, now we have social media. We didn't have social media when my husband was playing. Thank God. Like, for real. Yeah. Like, I have a whole lot of respect and admiration for the girls who are loving professional athletes now, legally as their wives, because yeah. they have a whole lot of people who are outside of the circle that are also loving, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, the husband. men in their lives. And so um, so it's real tricky now. It's real tricky. And there are pros and cons to it, because I feel like that same platform is giving women, the wives, an opportunity to have an identity outside of sports. A lot of times, you know, myself included, I got married and my whole life revolved around my husband and kids, as it should have. However, when football was over, it it became a little bit tricky for me because it's like, okay, Kim, now what are you going to do? And that ended up coming into play even further when I lost him. Mm. And so... um, you know, the, the whole life after the NFL is very complicated. It's very difficult, especially if you have a spouse that was injured a lot. And, you know, I sit on the family, uh, the, the Harvard football players health study. It's a study for, you know, the most NFL players trying to figure out how to make life after the NFL more healthy for players. A lot of people focus on concussions. It's Beyond concussions, beyond. There are so many trickle-down effects from what players endure that a lot of people just don't see. And I'm really sensitive to talking about it and making sure people know about it because it's just, it's super personal for me. So when you talk about, I want want you to add more uh, context around the injuries. Like, Mm -hmm. take us through, like, after a game. Tell us one of the most... Uh, devastating moments that you may have had to nurse your husband through after a game? Well, you know, I'll talk about the two times he had major surgery. He had to have both shoulders completely redone, and he actually missed the birth of our second son because he was in – actually, he was with the Cleveland Browns at the time for a hot second. He was in Cleveland rehabbing from an injury, and he couldn't come home. So I was in Dallas by myself, pregnant on bed rest with a toddler. My mom and dad would have to fly back and forth from Dallas to make sure I was okay. And when I went into labor, he wasn't home. And so I had to give birth by myself. And he was on the phone. And luckily that little booger came fast since I didn't have an epidural, but that's a whole different Mm. conversation. Mm. And he flew in the next morning and, and got to hold his son for the first time. So, you know, you miss moments like that. You know, I would have to nurse his wounds. You well, know? hold on. Let's talk about he had his shoulders. Yeah. You're talking about all this had to be redone. Yeah, because they would pop out of the joint, out of the socket all the time. So they had to cut it open and tighten it up and put it back in. And so um, he couldn't play. So it would be like season-ending surgery. So it's a matter of trying to nurse his mood in yeah. addition to the pain nursing the pain and the, the disappointment and the discomfort and, you know, trying to clean it up and, and making sure that it doesn't get infected and then making sure that he's going to rehab and that he's able to focus on that. It's a, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. 
nursing what you how you worded nursing his what emotion his, his, his mood nurse, yeah. his mood nursing his mood yeah that is deep that's something that we don't really talk a lot about is when you're dealing with people that's performing at a high level um they don't know whether they're going to get picked up from another team it's, it's all this these variables mm-hmm. um and then they're going through physical pain i mean it's like a car crash every play so your 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 body's hitting against other bodies and don't know if you know don't know what's going to happen in the next play mm-hmm. and then you come home and now you're dealing with the emotional stuff don't because they actually love to play so it's like now you're sitting out it's like a kid that that got grounded you know and they didn't do anything wrong and it's like well I see everybody else playing why can't I play and now you're at home as the wife having to nurse his mood I love how you worded that. Um, so what was that like? I mean, what was that like from a, a young a young girl, a young woman trying to be a wife? Like, let's talk about that. What was that like? Where did you get tools from? Did you talk to your mom and say, hey, how do you be a wife? Did you go read a book? Did you Mm-mm. go join a women's group in church? Did you have any other accountability partners that are, uh, are wives that mm-hmm. poured into you? Like, what was that like? Absolutely. The, the circle of NFL wives, depending on what team you're on, because it's very different in each market, but where we were, especially in Denver and Indianapolis and Oakland, yeah, it was we had a really tight-knit group, and they were very, very helpful in, in helping, you know, just whenever you need to release whatever is going on at home, because most people can't relate. Most people look yeah. at women who are – married to professional athletes like, oh, you're living the life. You have nothing to complain about. And they really have no clue about all of the pressures that go along with it, especially now because you've got, you know, social media and TV shows making it seem so glamorous. Glamorous. When it absolutely is not. At least it wasn't for us in, you know, in our world, not not in football. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was, it was difficult sometimes. So fast forward. Mm-hmm. Um the day that your husband got a diagnosis, mm-hmm. what was that diagnosis? How old were you? How old was he? And what year was that? So um, it was in October of 2005. He was ooh, he was 35 and I was 32. And he had been complaining about pain in his feet. So my husband had retired from the Oakland Raiders. God, I don't even remember what year it was. Maybe 2000, 2001. His last game was an infamous tuck rule game. Um, between the Raiders and the New England Patriots, um, which is why I hate Tom Brady and the Patriots to this day. I, I probably need counseling for it. Um, yeah, so um, so that was his last game. He decided he just didn't want to play football anymore. So unlike most players, he was able to comfortably walk away. He transitioned without issue. He went into starting a couple of businesses. He was coaching our kids and and. They're different sports. And um, he just wasn't feeling well, and he couldn't figure out why. And so he kept going to all of these doctors. They kept dismissing it, like, oh, well, of course you've got pain in your feet. You've been playing football since you were five years old. And so Mm. he had planned a trip to go to Costa Rica with one of his friends. I was in New York with some NFL wives. I was up there with Holly Robinson, Pete, and Sharice Brown, and Ashley Brown. We were up there for – we were on The View watching Holly debut her book. Oh, dang. Yeah, dope. yeah. Just that'll always be a part of our story. Yeah. And he called me while I was on that trip and was like, you know, what does it feel like to have an ulcer? I really don't feel well. My mm. stomach is hurting. Well, I knew that when I was flying back to New York, he would be leaving for Costa Rica so we wouldn't see each other. 
And I was low-key hoping that there was a hurricane brewing. It was Hurricane Rita that came, like, right after Hurricane Katrina. I was hoping that Hurricane Rita would cancel his his trip, but it didn't. And he went ahead and went. And, um, you know, I just told him because I'd never had ulcers before to call my mom and find out, you know, what, what that may have been about because she'd had them. And that was the last time I spoke to him. And I thought it was kind of odd because I knew what time he was leaving the next day, but I hadn't heard from him. And I'm like, that's weird. When I got back to Dallas, a couple of people called me and they were like, hey, Kim, how is Eli doing? We saw him yesterday and he didn't look like he was feeling well. And I'm like, hmm, that's odd. Like, you know, what's going on? So finally, I hear from him. He tells me that he was on the flight. He got sick on the plane. He was vomiting. They had a doctor come into the hotel and the doctor ran some tests and gave him a shot. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So he said he was feeling a little bit better and all was well, or so I thought. Then a few hours later, he calls and says, well, the doctor told him there's something off in his blood work and he needs to get back to the States as soon as possible. So I'm like, hmm, okay. So he gets back to the, back mm -hmm. to Dallas. I'd already planned out like getting him appointments set up to go see the doctor the day that we were supposed to go to, the doctor went to one doctor. She scheduled him to go to a second. We were taking separate vehicles. I went to that second appointment. He never showed up. So I'm like, wait, what's going on? But I knew he was supposed to run home and then meet me back at the office. So I go home, walk in the house, and I found my husband on the floor. Couldn't move. He was struggling, and I panicked. So I got him up and took him to the local e-care center, you know, like one of those mm -hmm. little standalone. standalone emergency rooms. And they eventually got him back in the room, stabilized him, and um, it was really, really late at that point. One of our sons was with us. The other one was at home. And um, the doctor came in the room and said, you know, well, you've got one of two options now that you're stable. You were really dehydrated. Okay. You know, they'd given him some IV fluids and, and he seemed to be stabilizing. And the doctor, no lie, said, you have one of two options. You can either go home and go to the doctor in the morning or you can go to the hospital right now. We can transport you to a bigger facility. So we were like, well, we'll just go home because who wants to go to a hospital unnecessarily if yeah. going home is an option? The doctor said, well, I can't promise that you're going to wake up. To this day, I have no idea why he said that that way. And I think about that doctor all the time. And so, of course, with that being said, we went to the hospital immediately. Went to the new hospital. An emergency room doc doctor brought my husband in, looked at him, looked over his paperwork and said, you know what, I'm going to run some tests. I'm going to stay until the results come back in because I feel like I know what this is. Sure enough, the doctor was right. My husband had a blood cancer called multiple myeloma. And I didn't find out about it until the very next morning, which was very traumatic because my husband had me come into the hospital, but he wouldn't tell me what was wrong until I got in there after he told me I needed to, to fill out some paperwork. I mean, it was, it was all, it was a lot. I feel like I just went on and on and on and I'm so, so sorry. No, but you can go on and on. I need to hear was, all this. It was, it was just, it was a lot. It was a very traumatic 24 hours. And so when he, when you found out what he had, mm -hmm. had you heard of that before? No, I'd never heard of multiple myeloma. Um, I Googled it immediately from the computer at the nurse's station and everything I read about it was horrific. It was a four to five year lifespan. Once diagnosed, it was horrible, horrible, horrible. What was that moment like to read that? 
frightening um, because, you know, in my head, when, when he originally said that it was cancer, you know, your brain yeah. thinks really, really quickly. And I went, okay, they'll cut it out. Yep. He'll get radiation, chemo, whatever, yeah. and he'll be fine. People beat cancer all the time. He's yeah. young, you know, we'll beat it. And when he said it was myeloma and I realized it was a blood cancer, I knew, I mean, I'd never really had an encounter with blood cancers before. I didn't know what it meant to fight one. And so reading about the lifespan after diagnosis, it became very clear that there was a very good chance that I might be a young widow. And I kind of felt like I needed to prepare myself for any outcome because I was a mom. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, we still had two very young sons and we just needed to figure out like how, how to endure it all. And when you talk about, you know, was there anybody to talk to? No, you know what I mean? Um, it was, it, it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. And I didn't realize how much it was, honestly, until after the fact. Because when you're going through it, you're just kind of in fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew what, what we were facing and I would address it. And that was all I knew was we needed to address it. You know, found good doctors, told them, look, I know what the lifespan is. I'm not trying to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I literally told his doctor, I love him to pieces, Dr. Berryman. I said, look, I know it's saying four to five years. That's not an option for this one. It's not an option. And that was my mindset. Like, not my husband. So then what was the process, the treatment process like from, because um, I want to know more about it. What, mm -hmm. what was the treatment process? Well, he had, he had to get his kidney stabilized. He was actually in organ failure. So that day that he didn't make it to the doctor's office when I found him um, at home on the floor, he was actually about to die. I didn't realize that until later. Um, so he was in organ failure. They needed to stabilize his kidney so that he could begin chemo. Um, he ended up getting a biopsy. Standard of care is to get a stem cell transplant. So a few months later, he did that, which basically meant... They completely wiped out his immune system and Start restarted it and gave him a new one with the hopes that it would put his cancer into remission. Because that's the tricky part about multiple myeloma. It never goes away. There's no cure for it. So the only way you, you keep offsetting, you try you, to keep resetting it's it. It's literally over. like an up and down battle roller coaster. You know, we're going to treat it here, keep it in remission as long as possible. Okay, it's starting to come back treated again with something else. And some people have myeloma for 20 years. I know people have had it for 25 years. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So even though they say the life ex uh, expectancy is four to five mm -hmm. years, then. Yeah, there are people who have lived with it for years. And there are people who, who don't. And that's kind of the frustrating part about it because you just, you just you never don't know. know. You don't know. And so um, take us to that, that, that painful day where everything took a turn for the worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so it's now March of 2010. He's had it for almost five years. You know, it has been a roller coaster. His, his myeloma had come in and out of remission a couple of times. And now he was on a clinical trial, which is also very normal for myeloma patients to take part in in order to figure out a way to put it in remission. And um, 
it's it's so crazy because at the time, you know, he seemed relatively fine. Um, that morning, I walked into our bedroom, and he was actually in the bathroom, and he was sick. He wasn't feeling well. He was vomiting, and I immediately rushed in uh, to just to check on him, of course, but to also comfort him because, you know, yeah. how he was sweating a lot. It was just, it was a lot. So I um, got a little bath cloth, put some water on it, was trying to, like, pat his head because he was sweating and just make him feel as comfortable as I possibly could because I just felt like whatever was coming out needed to come out. I called his doctor, told him what was going on. He tried to tell me to give him some medication to stop the vomiting. I'd given it to him. It didn't work. And so he was like, okay, you need to just go ahead and bring Elijah in. So I let him lay down while I got dressed. I started getting his bag packed with his laptop because he was a businessman. You know, he yeah. owned a couple of companies and we had a, a routine. You know what I mean? So if he was going to be in the hospital, I wanted him to have all of his stuff. Right. So I'm getting dressed, getting his stuff packed. I'm getting his clothes ready. And I'm like, hey, babe, I need you to get up so that you can go ahead and get dressed so we can go to the hospital. And he started talking to me. But when he was talking to me, his words didn't make sense. He said four words, and there was no connection, nothing. Like, it was like gibberish. And I didn't understand what was going on. And so at this point, I'd kind of like set him up, and I'd put a garbage can next to the bed because I knew that if he got sick again, I'd want him to turn over and, and go in the garbage can. So when I noticed him, to, he started dry heaving. I, I went to flip him to his side so that he would see the garbage can. But when I went to flip him on his side, he rolled out of the bed and hit the floor. And what alarmed me more than anything was the fact that he didn't react to hitting the floor. It was like he just hit the floor and stayed. And so I knew at that point something was terribly wrong. And I'm panicking. Um, I called 911. Our boys were, um, they had been asleep. But at some point, they came in the room. And I was really concerned about what, what they would see. And um, so I got them out of the room and waited for the ambulance to come. The ambulance came. My husband was still breathing. You know, I was talking to him. I was trying to um, figure out what to do. The 911 operator, I think, was still on the call with me. Ambulance gets to the house. They load him up and take him out. And so I needed to get somebody at the house to watch the boys. And so I got to the hospital a few minutes later. And when I got to the hospital, I remember the first person I ran into was one of the drivers of the ambulance. It was, a, I'll never forget, it was a young black guy. And um, I tried to make eye contact with him. And he wouldn't look me in my face. I will never, I would ne I'll never forget it. He did not look at me. And I just remembered that moment. And I went into the room and Elijah was laying, you know, in, on the bed. And the nurse came in and she's like, you know, he can hear you. You know, talk to him, hold his hand. So I'm talking to him. Some friends and family had come in. And I'm holding his hand and I'm talking to him and he's squeezing my hand. Squeezing it. So I'm like, okay, he hears me. I started talking to him about golf, and he would squeeze my hand. So I thought everything was going to be okay. Um, in my head, it's like, okay, this is just something else. 
it's part of living with myeloma. It's just, you know, another another moment. We'll figure out what's going on. They came in and told me that they had noticed a little bleeding on his brain. But they were like, but it's really not not too bad. So I'm like, okay, just something else. My husband was normally being treated at a different hospital, and that was where his physician was. And the physician called me and was like, hey, we're going to have him transported over here so that we can observe him. So I'm like, okay. They transported him to the new hospital. By this point, more and more people were showing up, old teammates. I bet there's a whole lot of people in that hospital room. It was insane. Um, it was insane the way our friends and family showed up. I, I will forever be grateful and never forget it. And the doctor came out and grabbed myself and my brother-in-law, my husband's younger brother, Shannon, and took us into another room. And he said, um, you know, we've been watching Elijah and there's, there's no brain activity. And um, I knew what that meant. Um, we had already had conversations about, you know, what to happen if it ever came to that point. Um, you know, that was one of the, the upsides about my husband. He was a, a great preparer. Mm -hmm. And so we'd already done, you know, wills and power of attorney and all of that paperwork. And, Armani, grab me the box of Kleenex, please. And he had already um, told me that he didn't want to be kept alive artificially. Yeah. And so. Um, Toss it. Toss it. <laughs> Thank you. And so, um, so I knew you know, the decision had already been made for me. He already prepared it. Yeah, he had already made the hardest decision, which is, um, and that's the thing that I watched my best friend go through that back in 2015. Um, yeah, 2015 in December. Um, yeah. I called that month the death of December because I got divorced that month. My divorce was final that month. My nephew, who I had been mentoring, got locked up in jail. Uh, this girl that uh, I was dating at the time, find out she had lied about a big situation, and um, my best friend died. And so I coined that month in December the death of December. But one of the things that he was going through prior, like the year before, is his mom. His mom was you know, fighting for her life. And the decision came whether to pull the plug because they saying, Hey, listen, you're just, you're just going to watch her just slowly deteriorate. Like you're, and I told him, I said, I'm be honest with you. I think you're being extremely selfish right now. I said, but you have the right. I said, they, they cut one of her legs off and they said, Hey, listen, we're just going to keep cutting body parts off. And then they amputated another leg. I said, come on, man. Like you watching your mom go through this. And he said, she a fighter. I believe the guy's going to bring her back. And I was like, I said, she's holding on for you. If you release her, the Holy Spirit has told me she's going to. The minute you say she can go, she's going to die immediately. Mm -hmm. He was like, man, I don't, uh, I can't let that happen. And then as he made, uh, he, he did what he had to do to arrive at that place where he can do that. And he did. And immediately mm. she died. And I said, she was holding on for you. Um, but I'm glad that your husband did 
in the Me preparation. Too. I love as a man, as a protector, as a covering that he still covered you even in his passing. He said, I'm still going to cover you because I know you're not going to be able to make this decision, but let me go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. You'd have left them all. You I feel like you'd, you'd have left them uh, hooked up to a machine? And I, I probably would have for longer. Um, the physician explained to me that they would monitor him for 24 hours to see if there was any improvement. And if there wasn't any improvement, then I would need to make the decision on when I wanted to remove him from life support. And so... The 24 hours went by, and they explained to me that he didn't improve at all, that he actually deteriorated more. And the oncologist came in and said, look, Kim, you know, even if you were to keep him on life support with the hopes that he would improve in terms of, you know, this aneurysm, we still got to treat him for cancer. Oh, God, yeah. I forgot about that part. And so I'm just, like, hearing... Mm. That component of it, um, you know, it, it again, just it just made me more comfortable with the decision that I had to make. Um, the toughest part by far was trying to explain it to our sons. Oh, boy. You know, at the time, the boys were um, 13 and 11. They were in middle school and getting ready to go to high school. And he was their hero. Were they at the hospital during the time? You kind of kept them away from No, him. I protected them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in hindsight, there's so many things. Um, you know, like I remember after it happened, my youngest son, when he went back to school, he would call me all the time. And I'm like, how is this boy calling me from school? Like, why are they not taking his phone? And then it dawned on me because I kept them so protected while their dad was in the hospital. I said, I wonder if he's calling his dad and checking on him and not getting a response. And so now his, his calling of me constantly during the day is to make sure I'm still here. And so that's good. You know, it's just one of those things you're, you're, yeah, you're not prepared. You know, when, when it came time to take him off life support, there was nobody who talked to me about what to tell our kids, how to yeah. tell our kids. There was nobody to tell me what to do afterwards. Like you're literally just doing this, just again, fight or flight mode. Yeah. Like you're just on, on, on a whim, just praying that you do right what's thing. right. And I remember the morning that I needed to tell them mm -hmm. I, um, I was leaving the neighborhood. I saw a lady walking a dog. She had this big old dog, like a hound dog. And I said, I'm, I'm getting ready to promise my kids dogs. My husband would never let the boys get a dog. <laughs> and they always wanted one. And so, you know, I told them that that would be part of our healing. The morning, or honestly, the afternoon, I had them in the room, and I had to explain to them what happened. Because um, I did want them to see him before I removed him from life support. I wanted them to see him still breathing. I didn't want them in the room when I removed him. I really tried to protect them because I was concerned about their memories and I wanted them to have positive memories, even down to the celebration of life. Like I was very particular about making sure it was run a certain way so that my kids were not traumatized. I didn't want people standing up and hooting and hollering and crying and none of that, none of that, because I wanted my babies to be at peace as much as possible with what happened because my babies lost their dad at a time they needed him the most. And I knew 
I'm a woman. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I could only be a dad. I couldn't be him. Yeah, you can only be a mother. I could only be a mom. And, and of course, I would be concerned about what men I would have in their lives from right. that point, you know? So I was grateful. My dad, listen, my mom and dad had been divorced since I was two years old. At that point, they had been divorced 32 years. They were both living in Florida, my mom in St. Petersburg, my dad in Gainesville. Both of them moved from Florida and into my house to help me raise my sons. That's beautiful. And so my kids, you know, they, they had as much stability as they possibly could, having endured what they did, and I just had to pray that they would turn out okay, you know, just with the choices I made as a mom to handle the situation the way that I did. Now I understand why the loss, was that the same dog that, that, that passed away a while ago? Mm -hmm. Hurricane, we had a Connie Corso, an Italian Mastiff. And, you know, I remember. So that was the dog you got to mm -hmm. help heal your sons. Yep. And when she passed away, my youngest son got her paw print tattooed on his arm. That's so how much that's that why that was so symbolic. Yep. Yep. Well, when you have background behind stuff, you you understand. Because a lot of times people, they lose a dog and they may say something on social media or whatnot. You're like, it's just a dog. Mm -hmm. My goodness, mm -hmm. it's a dog. You know what I'm saying? Just bear the dog and keep on going. Mm -hmm. You know, but dogs become a part of your family. They became, your dogs became a part of your, um, of your healing journey. Mm -hmm. And, and for your sons, that's absolutely powerful. Yeah. Didn't know he got the tattoo of his paw print. Yep. Yep. Absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely beautiful. So when you look back, um, well, let me just, let me just affirm you that you did a great job with these sons Thank you. and end up last and let you've been keeping stuff secret. Cause you've been my homie for a while. Uh, they didn't end up in jail and nothing, right? Mm -mm. They end up, okay. They ain't yeah. on drugs and nothing. Mm -mm. Okay. I think you did a great job. Uh, there ain't no baby daddies and ain't got no kids all everywhere. Do they? they got no, kids not yet. Okay. All right. Well, not yet. Knock on wood. There it is. Uh, so let's talk about those uh, brilliant sons that you have, mm -hmm. uh, and, let, and let's talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Tell us what, what they're doing now. Well, I have um, my oldest, Elijah's in, in college, and he's finishing up, and the youngest one, um, he, he plays baseball. He's with the Yankees minor league system, and um, I know so much about the NFL and football that I did not want either one of my boys playing, um, you know. <laughs> just to keep it real <laughs> and um so we'll see what we'll see what happens but both boys are you know healthy and they seem uh -huh. adjusted you know I don't know I feel like the type of loss they endured is something that will it'll impact them for the rest of their lives but I feel like you know in honor of their their dad being productive happy fruitful people, human beings, just good people. Um, it's just, it's important. And I hope that's what I've molded them to be. You said something very uh, powerful the first year that I met you. I met you in 2015 mm -hmm. and at Megafest. And one of our mutual friends uh, was having like a little get together and uh, we met. You wanted to get a t-shirt. Mm -hmm. I had a t-shirt that I was selling at times. So Kim always thought that I was just a t-shirt guy. She I was did. like, and then as she it's got so to know funny. me. Yeah, she's like, isn't that... 
It's just a t-shirt, guys. That's, <laughs> that's all you do. I was like, wow. So then she got to knowing what I do. Hold on, you did national tour plays, or you did what? What is this? I just thought you did t-shirt. Write guy. songs. You write songs. So it's a it's a it's a uh, recurring joke yeah. when she when she finds out some new talent mm-hmm. I have. She's like, but you're just a t-shirt you're guy. Just a t-shirt guy. <laughs> Silk screen shirts. Yeah. <laughs> screen shirts. And so when we met, I remember we was gonna meet up. Uh, for lunch, and I was gonna get you one of those, uh, get you a shirt, and um, you're gonna buy a shirt. And the day we we're supposed to meet up, you said that the friend that you were supposed to go to brunch with bailed out on right. you, and I was like, oh well, let's just we can just reschedule for another day. And you was like, what did you say? Why I'm still going to eat? <laughs> and I said, oh okay. I said, so you'll go out to eat by yourself? And what did you say? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I sure will. Yeah. You said the that the, the, the moment that after losing your husband mm-hmm. and I can't say it the way that you said it. So I want you to add, you know, how do you feel after losing your husband? How did that make your life brighter in the sense of uh, the tenacity that you will go after things and things that you won't, won't put off for tomorrow and all that type of stuff? Well, I mean, I, I learned the value of time. You know, I learned that if you wait for other people to do things or if you keep putting stuff off, things that you really want to do, you end up possibly missing out unnecessarily because you're afraid of what it's going to look like if you do it by yourself. You're afraid of what other people are going to think. And I just, I don't live like that anymore. You know, if it's something I want to do, I just go and do it, which isn't always a good thing. Not always. But um, why you say that? Well, because I mean, some stuff I probably don't need to be doing, <laughs> you know. But um, but it's okay because life is short, and um, and I don't really have a whole lot of regrets. In all honesty, especially in the now eleven years since Elijah's been gone, like I I had to reinvent myself. You know, that's what I was explaining to you about. You know, when you lose your identity in your your spouse. You know, when Elijah passed away. I didn't really know what I was going to do as a woman who's no longer married. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, wait a minute. I'm entering a world where I'm by myself and I'm young. You know, I was 37 years old when I became a widow. And, you know, it's kind of like when you take those vows, when you hear, you know, till death do you part, you never think it's going to happen within 15 years, not when you're 20 years old. And so I had to really figure out, you know, what was life for me going to look like now? And I had to figure out what things did I like? What did I, you know, because now I didn't have his influence. And that was hard for me. I remember, you know, being in dressing rooms and putting on clothes and being like, okay, but Elijah doesn't, he won't like this. Well, this is too tight. So he won't, and like, Kim, he's not here. Yeah. So you got to, you got to like get used to what is it that you want and what is it, what is it you want to do? And so that's what I did. And that's what, that's what I've, I'm sorry. That's fine. Armani didn't correct me. (laughs) Um, That's what I have continued to do in, in life without him. So um, you said you don't like putting off tomorrow, Mm -hmm. what you can do today. You know, you know, off in the. Oh boy. Uh oh. I'm sorry. Please interrupt. But I live. I literally live by that quote. That quote came from a show I used. A kid show I used to watch. 
<laughs> I, I love him. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you, Amaya. He just jumped right in the interview. And well, I mean, and, and, that's, and that's good because, you know, another component of it, you know, when I talk about the whole time thing is that, you know, and I'll never forget it was my friend Ashley Burgess that, that so eloquently explained it to me. But, you know, I'm so particular about doing stuff when I want to do it. And she yeah. said, Kim, it's because you know what it's like to not have enough time. Yes. Which brings me to this. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Because I'm going to charge you up. He's I'm going to hold, hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been talking about this podcast <laughs> that you're supposed to have been doing since, since 1922. And uh, you keep saying you're going to do this podcast since mm -hmm. 1922. And uh, every day, every week, every month, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. About all the equipment. About all you the trained equipment. me on how to use trained the equipment. Trained you how to do it. Last year. Here we go. We've been to move into 2022. Mm -hmm. And we start this off in 1922. So oh, it's wow. been 100 years. It has been. And you haven't done it yet. I'm going to do it. So no, it ain't going to be I'm going to do it. We're going to say it right here on this podcast. When this episode releases on Wednesday, <laughs> on Wednesday, that is three days from now, you better have your YouTube channel up. Okay. You can start working on getting it on Apple Podcasts and all that stuff and mm -hmm. Google Pod, everywhere else. But what you're going to do is going to have it up. I'm going to put a link in the bio. If you don't have that, the world will know that you're a punk and you didn't do it. So we're saying right now that it's going to be a link in the bio. If y'all don't see a link, that's because she punked out. Oh, wow. And I, 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 Oh, my goodness. Because she punked out. I'm going to put you right on the spot. Okay. So you've been talking about this podcast. What's the name of this podcast? Not seeking approval. Not seeking approval. We had we had lunch one day. Oh, yeah. And you pulled up and I was like, oh, no, that, 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 that domain name going to be gone. Yeah. And what happened? It was available. How in the world, if anybody knows about getting domain names and stuff like that and, and being able to get your real estate online, mm -hmm. getting something as catchy as that would be impossible. Mm -hmm. And we sat down at Mi Casino we and did. you pulled up, not seeking approval. I said, get it. Mm -hmm. I said, did you spell it right? How in the world did you get that? I know. How long ago was that? It was it was yesterday. No, I wasn't no dog on yesterday. How long? Look on my Instagram story. I was at Mikosina's yesterday. No, I ain't talking about you go to Mikosina every day. <laughs> so I'm talking about the day we went where you got that domain name. How how many months ago was that? That may have been like February or March. Uh huh. Uh huh. Perhaps. And what's the day? April. No, day is October. That's what, that's what the the, the the month is October. <laughs> no. And this many months went by, and then we had conversations a year before that. We did. Not seeking approval. Not seeking approval. Will be released on today. Mm -hmm. You understand me? You just you, you just went through this beautiful thing about how the loss of your husband has taught you to value time it, it and has. not put off till tomorrow what you could do today. Armani done chimed in because he felt he the has. Holy Ghost on that on, on, on that, that on that quote from Thank his you, favorite Armani. TV show. So what we gonna do is we're gonna memorialize your podcast on today. I want people to go ahead and subscribe because um, as soon as she hits 100 subscribers, you can lock up the, the vanity URL. Uh, let people know what this podcast is about. Honestly, what I want to use Not Seeking Approval for is to have different people come on and share their stories, their whole, their different experiences, maybe about things that they wanted to do and didn't do because they were worried about what people would think. Yes. I, mean, I honestly experienced 
that a lot. You know, and one of the most poignant moments for me was after I lost my husband, when I'm now a single woman and I'm young. And I remember being with a friend, a male friend, a guy who was just a friend. And somebody reached out to a mutual girlfriend of ours, and their first question was, didn't her husband just pass away? Like, you know, how long has she been by herself? As if to imply, you know, as a widow, I'm not supposed to talk be to with nobody. anybody or talk like. Until when? Uh, exactly. That's always when, the, when, very, is this, when is this time? Yeah, yeah. That whole life as a single woman has been um, interesting. And what was the time span between that uh, from your uh, husband passing away and before they saw you just hanging out with this platonic oh, it had been It had been two years at, at that point. And I really didn't date anybody until maybe like, maybe like two and a half, maybe almost three years later. And let me tell you, although, um, you know, if he were walking in here right now, he wouldn't dare speak to me because he knows that I would probably harm him. Um, <laughs> you talk about the other guy you talked to too? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Flashback. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, one of the things that I will say is that I'm grateful because I learned my heart could still work. There it is. And that was my biggest fear Ooh. about becoming a widow, or not my biggest fear, but one of my fears. Yes, because I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, that I, I wouldn't, I'd be by myself the rest of my life because I wouldn't know how to love someone again, or I wouldn't know how to comfortably be with someone, or I'd have some guilt or some type of just feeling about trying to move forward. And moving forward was very important to me because I, I wanted to set a good example for our boys. And yes. so, um, yeah. And see, I don't think a lot of people talk much about that. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because like the church I used to go to, I go to, I used to go to a well, it's a well, no, it's predominantly white. And uh, you went there before Covenant Church. Mm -hmm. You and your husband used to go there. Yeah. And so um, I watched a pastor or whatever who um, wife passed away, and then shortly after, I mean, I think it was like in the next year was remarried. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking, going, "How in the world did he marry? Mm -hmm. He must didn't love her that much. Yeah. He married somebody that See? quick." I'm over here judging him. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how you don't know what. You don't know what the story. You start you. judging them, talking about. I bet you she was there the whole time. Yeah. I bet you this, and it's like, how did I put myself in that place to say you don't know what's going on in that situation, mm -hmm. and you don't know what people's healing look like. You don't know how long that person battled with the uh, with the the illness that mm -hmm. they had with right. with said person. You don't know the blessing that the the wife could have given him yeah. and said, "Hey, listen, hey, I know I know how you are. I want you to find love quickly." And I want you to get in love quickly. Hey, you're not going to be betraying me by it. You don't know right. what type of blessings Absolutely. were spoken. And here I am with my little judgmental self talking about, I can't believe he just done got married this quick. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So um, I think this is going to provide a lot of reference for a lot of people because I even have a friend, uh, shout out to King Robinson, who lost his wife uh, this year. And um, I definitely want to do an off the podcast with him. And let him speak on that because he wasn't married that long at all, like just a couple of years or yeah. something. And I said, I mean, when I even read his Facebook post, I even reached out to him and told him to call me. And he called me immediately, like within 15 mm -hmm. minutes. And I wouldn't answer the phone because I didn't know what to say to right, him. I'm right, going, like you weren't prepared. Yeah, I was like, oh, it was yeah. too fast. I don't know. So King, I owe you a call. But it's like, I was like, I don't even know what to say to this man. Because I don't, of course, my greatest fear is to do all this work, to fall in love, to get married to someone, and then to lose them 
Like that is my greatest fear. And so the reason why I'm so uncomfortable having this conversation is because you, we, we make up in our mind, um, we're going to grow old together. Yeah. Like I said, in one of my, te in my Ted talk, I'm, I'm going to sit. I imagined uh, sitting on a porch and rocking chairs. I don't know why we always sit in the rocking chair, but that's just a it's part like of stuff. Old people. Yeah, do. That's what that old like people fun. do. Exactly. So just sit on the porch in a rocking chair, drinking cold glasses of freshly squeezed lemonade. <laughs> as we reminisced about the 40 plus years we built together. That's a quote Watching from my Ted talk. Yeah. You know, that's what, I, that's what I want. Yeah. But, when death do us part happens in our 30s or death do us part happens a couple of years into the marriage and into the marriage mm -hmm. it's like how devastating that have i mean that's that's got to be devastating especially even with covid-19 um my friend uh he passed away um last year you know and he was in one of my plays and whatever shout out to uh, Fred and it was just well, Pastor Fred, comedian or whatnot, and he was in that in that in that Christmas play that I, I, I did. I remember. I remember. Yeah, I was a Christmas concert with Kenny Lattimore, yep. and I was like, and I was talking to his wife, and she was saying that as his organs was failing and stuff from COVID nineteen, compounded with all the other underlying health issues that he had, I was just like, leaving those kids leaving your wife and then they're left to put the pieces together. And truthfully speaking, you get a whole lot of people in that waiting room when they're trying to find out if you're going to lose that, that, that spouse or that loved one. But then those people just kind of yeah, go goes back on. to their life. Yeah. And then absolutely. you may have 50 people in that room. And then later on, you may have about one or two yeah. out of dies that's there like checking on you. Are you all yeah. right? All right. Absolutely. And, um, so I never, um, yeah, so that's why it's real hard to talk about this. Yeah. But thank you for adding reference around this conversation um, and allowing me to face one of my biggest fears mm -hmm. uh, because if we really listen to this vow, that means that we can't waste days with love. We got When we get that person, we got to be intentional Absolutely. every day. Um, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger to make sure that we're building that person up to build legacy and always uh, remind ourselves that what's the last word. If this person were to pass away mm -hmm. after leaving my presence, what was the last thing I said to them? Absolutely. What, how did I make that person feel? Uh, was it an argument? Was I tripping about something so trivial, mm -hmm. you know, that will continue to echo in my mind forever? Like, I can't believe if I just had one more moment. Did you yeah. ever tell that person, I hate you, I wish I'd never see you again, yeah. and then they die? Can you imagine? <sighs> I mean, and it's one of the reasons why I am very mindful about the words that come out of my mouth for that very reason. Because you you really don't know what your last conversation is going to be like with your loved one. I mean, I lost Elijah very unexpectedly. And the crazy part about it was I think we both took for granted that we would know when it was coming. You know, with him having cancer, it was going to be, oh, okay, well, if he's got some type of change in his, his health status, we'll know because he's constantly being checked up on. But I never thought about an aneurysm. Mm. I never thought about the fact that I'd be talking to my husband one minute and 20 minutes later he was gone. And it was just that quick. And, and, you know, and to be very honest with you, I have felt like, you know what, Kim, you kind of prepared yourself for it. So I feel like I was a little bit ahead of the game. But when I look at people like Vanessa Bryant, mm. 
you know, people, regular people, not yeah. celebrities who, you know, the wives of police officers. Oh, Firefighters, the, the you know the, go the to work, don't yeah come home the the husband whose wife went out to go to work and got hit by a drunk driver. Like there's so many moments. There's where, a big snowstorm that happened this year, oh, man. and it just Dallas. We just got the worst. We call it the snowpocalypse, mm -hmm. and people were. It was a crazy Chain car pile up. Car pile up. Yeah, yeah, and then somebody did. Yep. You Multiple like, people, <sighs> families forever. All COVID. Yep. COVID. I mean, when I storms, and honestly, hurricanes. When I think about the fact that. I read a story the other day that said there are 120,000 kids who lost their primary caregiver because of COVID. There are a bunch of little kids who now don't have one. Some don't even have both of their parents behind COVID. You know, I never thought about that. Lord Jesus. Those kids, those families forever altered because of this. And so for me, it's why you really do have to be mindful about how you move in this world, how you treat the people that you genuinely care about, the people that you treasure. You better let them know. I'm loving seeing all of these people who are very intentional about giving people their flowers now that they're here. Yeah. It's so important. So important. Man, let me tell you something. You done lit a fire up under me. Good. For me doing my, uh, my boys home. Okay. Oh, uh, Kingdom Royale because I it's such a big undertaking that mm -hmm. I'd be like, man, this is so big. I don't know how I'm gonna pull this off. This is a multi-million dollar effort. Like mm -hmm. I got three dollars and fifty cents. That's a long way from multi-million dollars. And but you God said, it. Yeah, thank you. But I just know that it's gonna take all of God to strategically align uh all the pieces to make stuff happen. When you start talking about all the kids that have uh, lost their primary caregiver, mm -hmm. and it's like, ah, let me go ahead and and go help a few of them mm -hmm. out um, with Kingdom Royale. So, hey, I'm over here trying to charge you up, and you don't charge me yep, up, unbeknownst good. to me. All right, so that's what we got to do. We got work to do. Well, listen, Kim, how can people follow you on social media? Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter at the Kim Alexander. real simple. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm on Facebook, Kimberly Alexander. And hit me up. Yeah, you know, I, up. I lo Anybody, let me tell you, one of the things that I'm really um, proud of that I've been doing over the past few years is, you know, because of my experience with my husband, I'm really big on cancer advocacy work. Um, and I've started a health communications company called Level. I love talking about, yes. you know, my experience in an effort to help other people. So if you are a caregiver, if you are a patient, yes, especially in um, spaces that are impacted by health disparities, you know, cancers, diabetes, diabetes, mental health, maternal health, anything impacting communities that aren't getting the attention they need, they're really important to me in terms of trying to make a difference in that space. So feel free to hit me up. Um, what else do I like to do? Well, I want you to tell people to watch, uh, to, to subscribe to your podcast that you finna. I want you to say that to the people. <laughs> and subscribe to my podcast. Don't shack up. Is that, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. shack up. Yes. Look for Not Seeking Approval podcast, hosted by Kimberly Alexander. There it is. I want you to say that in the atmosphere so you can, you can now you can so sign can go home and do it. So you can go home and do it. So you got to go home and do no, it. No, I have to do it. Yeah, so the link is going to be in the bio. It's so going to be in the bio. Y'all give it up to, so y'all don't know, that this is this is my partner. Like, like, yeah, like real, Kim and I, like, we, we, we real tight. So we thick as thieves. Uh, yeah, so... This this is this is beautiful. I recognize that the whole point of us meeting back in 2015, one of the main points was for this moment to happen. So I love how intentional God is, and so uh, y'all give it up to give it up for my homie.
Kimberly Alexander. Kim possibly in the building. Kim connects. Kim connects. Discover, uncover, recover love with the new Dear Future collection. The journey starts from within. Let your inner thoughts find freedom on the pages of this richly hued Dear Future Blue Sapphire Edition Genuine Leather Journal. It features a cross-stitched spine and luxurious cording to bind your deepest insights. A greater compliment is the Dear Future Luxury Bamboo Fountain Pen. There's nothing more intentional than the writing process of a fountain pen. This is an elegant writing work of art. Join the thriving community of fountain pen enthusiasts and purchase one today. These exclusive items and more are available at dearfuturewifey.com. Oh, well, I made it through this episode. I'm telling you, it's hard for me to talk about death because I always think about losing my future wifey after spending X amount of years. You know, there's no promise on how many years you'll get with that person. But uh, God has been giving me a different perspective and thank God for it. So thank you, Kim, for blessing the podcast with your journey and your story. Dear future wifey, losing you is no longer my greatest fear. Not maximizing the privilege of sharing each moment with you is. I'm reminded of a hilarious meme I once saw that said, dudes be like, babe, get dressed. I'm going to take you for granted. <laughs> it is my goal to never take you for granted. Life is too precious and our days aren't promised to haphazardly treat our union casually. I refuse to sow these many tears, believing God will introduce us, grant me clarity of thought to recognize you, give me faith and courage enough to marry you, only to treat you anything other than a priority. One of my favorite movies is The Notebook. I loved how Noah pursued Ali's heart, even through her battle with dementia. He pursued every memory, cherished each moment she remembered him. Their love was so unified, it was the apex of till death do us part. Your future hubby. Thank you for listening to the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Remember, be lit. Live intentionally and transparently. And don't stop loving. Make sure to subscribe to our Dear Future Wifey YouTube channel. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We welcome your support. Simply share our podcast with your friends and family.